The scripture reading this morning comes to us from Psalm chapter 23, verse 1 through 3, as well as from Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 through 13. This is the word of God. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now, at length, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every and any circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. If you all did a personal assessment of yourself, over this past year, I wonder if you would describe yourself as a thankful person or a person whose heart has been plagued by discontentment. So give, give yourself a moment and think about that. Right? How have you responded to life over this past year? If you were born in the 70s or in the early 80s, right, you're part of what's called the Gen X generation, right? Uh, some of our older members, including myself, would fall into that category. Uh, if you're born after that, you're you know, Gen Y or the millennial generation, that's most of you. There are some differences between us, but you know, one thing we have in common is that we actually haven't suffered all that much compared to previous generations. We've lived fairly comfortable lives, and many historians and sociologists look at us and say that we're an especially self-absorbed people. We're people who love to consume far more than what we produce. Uh, there was a, a news headline that caught my attention not too long ago. It uh, said this. Selfie generation costs the U.S. economy $800 billion a year. Harvard report warns vanity leads to poor productivity at work and higher health care costs for eating disorders and depression, etc. That probably doesn't surprise any of you, right? Because we know how our generation actually lives. Uh, we are the generation of smartphones, of selfies, of short videos, solely designed to attract attention. We are the generation of airbrushed women and of Peter Pans, right? men who choose to never grow up. Uh, I personally have no doubt that we will be remembered in history as the arrogant generation who had the audacity to redefine for the first time in human history ever even the most basic realities such as marriage and gender. Sadly, this is the world in which we live. So there is, I believe, a constant need to reorient our hearts if we are hoping to swim against the cultural tide that 
constantly pushes against us. So on this Thanksgiving Sunday, I wanted to take a break from our Acts series that will soon be coming to a close, and I wanted to have us reorient our hearts by considering what it means to live with godly contentment. You know, a good way to start, I thought, would be for me to clarify what the Bible doesn't mean by contentment. Okay, so a few things. Number one, contentment doesn't mean that you can't desire stuff you currently don't have. Okay, in other words, if you don't have a wife, it's okay to desire a wife. If you don't have a job, it's okay to desire a job. In fact, if you don't desire a job, I, I think there's something really wrong with you. You should desire a job if you don't have one. If you're playing any kind of sport, it's okay to desire to win. Amen? <laughs> but by the way, I have to take just a short break here. Uh, I've been asked to be one of the four captains in our upcoming annual flag football tournament. I didn't ask to be one, by the way. I, 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 I told them specifically, if you can find someone else, please find someone else. But, but they chose me anyway. Um, and so although my team will have a very slim chance of winning, given my old legs, I want to make this clear. Whenever I play sports, I play to win, okay? That used to strike fear in people's hearts, but no, no more. <laughs> They look at me and say, you're too old. <laughs> you got no chance, right? I get that. Um, I'm going to play to win, though. Don't worry, Pyongo. I won't choose Allison. I'll, I'll let Allison play with you. But I may have to choose Zenus. I hear he's like a speedster. So, Zenus, if you're listening, you know, I'm sorry. You know, you're going to be on a losing team. But uh, <laughs> my, my point is that... <laughs> It's okay to desire things in life, okay, whether it's a wife, a job, or success in whatever you do. However, the Bible does say you shall not covet. And what that command teaches us is that not all of our desires are legitimate desires. And not only that, it teaches us that even our good desires can become excessive. And when your good desires become excessive, that's when you run into trouble. You know, I spoke about the storms of life last Sunday, right? You guys remember? So let me use that as an example. So it's, it's not necessarily wrong to want God to quiet the raging storms that are tormenting you in life. Nothing wrong with that. You can ask God to take those away, and God sometimes does offer that grace well, my point is that if that good desire becomes an excessive one, that's when it becomes a wrong desire that leads to discontentment and a thankless heart, you see. You know, it's interesting when the apostles faced severe persecution, okay, it would not have been wrong for them to pray that the persecution would be removed. And I'm sure they did pray that. As Jesus prayed that the cup of wrath be removed when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's okay to pray such prayers. See, but at some point, 
Both the apostles and Jesus knew that it was God's will that the persecution remain. And so after a while, instead of praying that they would be delivered from persecution, instead they prayed for faithfulness right, in the midst of the hardship. They prayed for boldness in the face of persecution. Right? They prayed for grace to endure. Right? That's, that's a mature way of, of practicing faith in the face of your trials. And they were able to do so because their desire for deliverance was not excessive. It wasn't a covetous desire. Of course, they wanted it, but far more than that, they wanted God's will to be done. So for them, God's will, it trumped everything. So again, contentment does not mean that you can't desire things you currently don't have. You can desire them, but you also need to learn what it means to temper those desires. Secondly, godly contentment does not mean that you are to ignore or be in denial about the pain and disappointments in life that we all suffer. You know, consider the Apostle Paul. He had a pretty complicated emotional life, just like many of us. In Romans, he confesses that he feels deep sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart over those who are lost. Romans chapter 9, verse 2, right? Think about it. He was deeply saddened over lost souls. We also know about some of the physical hardships he had to endure because he writes about them in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, five times, he says, I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Very difficult life he lived. But then in Philippians, he writes, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. To be content. And so when he writes about contentment in the Lord, see, he doesn't mean that contentment demands or requires a life absent of sorrow or deep distress. Again, it says, I have this unceasing anguish in my heart, and yet he says, I, I learned to be content. And consider also where Paul was when he wrote the letter to the Philippian church. As many of you know, the letter to the Philippian church is considered Paul's letter of joy. Right? Paul was in chains. He was imprisoned. He mentions it in his letter. And he may have been under house arrest, which was a milder form of imprisonment, but regardless, right, his execution was looming over his head. And in the midst of all that stress, he writes this letter of joy and of contentment. How is this possible? So being content does not mean ignoring your troubles or pretending that you're somehow immune to human sorrow or deep distress. It can all be there. And yet, Paul says that we can still learn how to be content. Thirdly, godly contentment doesn't mean that there ought not to be any intensity or passion in your life. In other words, contentment does not equal indifference or sort of a, a fatalistic spirit. Now, sometimes we equate the two. 
You know, you have to reject sort of the. Uh, I learned this song when I was a young, young kid. I don't know why. I think my, my dad liked the tune, so he would sing sometimes. Kesera, sera, whatever will be, will be. The future is not ours to see. Kesera, sera, which basically is an attitude of fatalism. Like I don't care. Whatever happens, happens. That's not what contentment ought to look like. I mean, the, the Apostle Paul was probably the most intense person in the Bible. Right? He preached contentment, and yet he called people to still press on and run hard toward the goal that Christ has attained for us by his grace. So contentment and laziness or apathy are not at all to be placed in the same category. Don't have a kesara approach to life. Contentment and intensity or running hard are not at odds with each other. You know, a great picture of contentment can be found in Psalm 23, where it says that he makes me lie down in green pastures. Think about that image. Think about green pastures, okay? Think about you just lying down on those green pastures, just resting, right? Lying down on green pastures is a great picture of contentment, don't you think? It means that you're well-loved and you're cared for, that you can relax, right? It means that despite the 1,000 things that's been causing you to worry in this life, you're able to trust in your shepherd and be still before him, right? Allowing your soul to find rests in his care. It's a beautiful picture. I'm sure some of you have a very hard time just lying down and being still, right? You have a hard time falling asleep because there's no peace in your heart. We all have plenty of reasons to be stressed, so I completely understand. You know, for virtually all of my marriage, uh, my wife, Joyce, has said that I sleep really well. Um, as soon as I put my head down on the pillow, she's been amazed that I'm able to conk out in 30 seconds flat right? while she struggles to sleep. Okay? So you may think that my heart is always at peace, but it's not true. Right? Let me say that it's, it's, it's been the case that I, I grind my teeth quite a bit. It's been a while. I, I don't know exactly when it happened, but I, I grind my teeth quite a bit. You know, one of the first things every dentist asks me is, what do you do for a living? <laughs> Are you stressed? You know? On top of that, you know, more recently, Joyce has asked me to go see a sleep doctor because she thinks I now suffer from an early form of sleep apnea. You know, I'm in denial about that. So. But she claims that I suddenly stop breathing at night. Okay. This must be God's way of humbling me because, uh, don't tell Pastor Jacob this, but uh, I've been secretly making fun of Pastor Jacob for his serious case of sleep apnea. Right? <laughs> And now I'm the one who can't sleep properly. Uh, God is humbling me, I think. So I, I need this message just as much as you do. Okay. So may we all learn to place our trust 
in our Good Shepherd. And may the Lord grant us the grace to lie down and enjoy some peaceful rest this week. Amen? <laughs> now, Philip Keller, um, not Tim Keller, no, no, no relation there. Okay, Philip Keller, in his book, A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23, identifies three big obstacles that keep sheep from being content. And I, I thought this would be helpful uh, for me to share with all of you. And he says the first obstacle is fear. Okay? He says that sheep are easily afraid because they're really not able to defend themselves. Right? They're at the bottom of the food chain, right? They can be easily overtaken by a wolf or any type of wild beast. And so to get a sheep to lie down and relax is not an easy thing to accomplish. Right? If they sense even the smallest threat, They'll get right back up and start nervously moving around again. Right? Isn't that how we are often? It takes a lot to get our hearts to settle down because we worry so much. If you're a student, and I think there are a good number of students here, uh, you're constantly worried about your grades, are you not? You're worried about what your peers will think of you. Uh, when I look back at my years in school, I would often ask myself, maybe you can relate to this, okay? But this, this made me sort of a not-so-great student. I would always ask myself, what if I study really hard? Like, what if I pull an all-nighter for this exam and still fail? <laughs> or at least not do well. What if I still get a C after pulling an all-nighter? How embarrassing would that be? And so that's one big reason why I, I didn't really study that hard and wasn't the best student I could have been. Um, it's like, for me, it was like better to just do a little bit and get a C rather than study really hard and, and risk not, you know, getting a good grade. Um, or maybe you're a young single man, okay, who wants to get married, but you're always afraid, right? You're afraid to tell her that you like her because you fear rejection. Or if you have a family to care for, uh, you're, you're, you're worried. You know, what if I say too much about what I think about the different work policies regarding gender or race and get flagged for being too, you know, conservative or whatnot? What then? And, you know, these are, these are fears that we can all relate to because they're rooted in the common fears that we all suffer from, right? The fear of, fear of failure and the fear of man, we all know what these are. But on top of these common fears, you know, the, there are experts right, who study uh, human behavior and human fear, and they claim that most of our fears are completely irrational fears. Right? Makes no sense. You know, uh, let me expose some of my family members. I won't mention who, but um, we have one person in the family that's extremely fearful of these tiny little bugs, right? Doesn't matter what bug, it doesn't matter how tiny it is. You know, uh, she actually, I think, <laughs> is able to detect bugs from 20 feet away. It's amazing. She's able to do that. And, and then, if she knows that there's a bug in the room, she gets very emotional about it, right? And so I have to, I have to always tell her, it's just... 
Joshua, just go stop on it, okay? You know? And Joshua's the one who goes, you know, he takes care of it, right? It's just, it doesn't make any sense. You know, uh, my wife has confessed, I'm sorry, uh, that, no, no, this, this is a different fear. She, she has confessed that uh, she's fearful of dolls, you know? She must have watched the movie Chucky, you know, while I got to know. Uh, some, some of you fear like mannequins, a similar thing. They kind of spook you, right? But what are they going to do to you? Nothing. It's a co completely ir irrational fear, right? I think, uh, I think Sella's the one who fears clowns, okay? Some of you fear tight spaces. Some of you fear, like, small holes. You know, when you see beehives, you freak out and you run the opposite direction. Or there's some things called lotus seed pods that are really, yeah, I, I admit, it's troubling to look at. But, I mean, you know, nothing to be fearful of there, right? I, I discovered a, a new form of fear after observing people over the last three years. I, I haven't been able to come up with a name. Maybe somebody can help me, okay? But it's basically this. It's a fear that everything you see on your social media news feed is happening everywhere, right? <laughs> and it, it causes you to panic. It paralyzes you. Let me give you an example. Uh, maybe a couple of years ago, there was a spike in Asian hate crime, okay? Um, and people in Nova, I, I know people, I'm not going to mention any names, there are people in Nova, okay? The, the, practically the safest place you can live in this world, right? Um, saying, basically, oh, I'm so afraid to send my mom or my sister out to H Mart, Because right? you know, I'm afraid that they're going to you know, be attacked. You know? In the meantime, nothing is happening on the news, right? Uh, there, might have, there may have been one or two incidents in Annandale, but other than that, nothing, right? What, what, what is that? What is that, okay? Now, again, I'm not, I'm not denying that those crimes were happening you know, somewhere around the country and that there was a minor spike, but you know, what is that? that? That's the irrational fear, right? Just to give you one example. You know, one author describes fear like this. I think this is a helpful image, okay? <clears throat> think of this. A dense fog that covers seven square blocks and is 100 feet deep is composed of less than one glass of water. And his point is that there's not much there. Right? There's not much there, but it still can cripple an entire city. And he's arguing that fear is like that. There's not much there, but it can cripple us. And it can make us do irrational things. Brothers and sisters, what fears have been crippling you? The second obstacle that keeps sheep from being content is what the author calls flies. Right? And flies represent distractions. Okay? There is no peace or rest when flies or all around you, sort of buzzing around you, right? It's a distraction. Uh, and when there are many distractions, it's, it's just hard to be content, is the point. Unfortunately, for many of us, Thanksgiving and Christmas season only adds more stress to our lives. There's more things to do. It's going to be nonstop through Christmas, right? Meeting after meeting for me, right? You've got Thanksgiving meals to prepare for, family gatherings to attend, gifts to buy, church obligations. I got budget meeting after budget meeting coming up. On top of your regular responsibilities. 
And so in the midst of your busyness or distraction, you can become like a Martha running around trying to do so many things with anger in your heart because you've forgotten the most important thing. Thirdly, uh, the third obstacle that keeps sheep from being content is what the author calls famine. You know, when sheep are hungry or thirsty, they just can't lie down and be still. And that's true for us too. Right? There is a hunger and thirst in every one of us for something that this world simply cannot offer. Right? I mean, you know this, right? The more you chase after money or success, what happens? The more you want it. Right? You just want more and more of it. You, know, you think that relationships will fulfill you. Well, maybe to some degree, but they don't. You still feel always sort of dissatisfied, right? whether it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse or children. There's always something to be dissatisfied of. The more you pursue sexual pleasure, right, the more you need it. And the bottom line is that if you long for ultimate security or significance in anything less than God, you will be disappointed and you, you will remain restless. Right? If you live long enough, you know this to be true. This is wisdom. C.S. Lewis once wrote, if I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. This, this should be quite obvious to you by now. Right? After all of the attempts to satisfy your souls with worldly pleasures, has your soul ever been satisfied? And if not, Shouldn't you at least consider the possibility that it's because you were made for another world? Now, when David says in the Psalms, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, he, he, he uses the personal name of God, Yahweh, God's personal name. He doesn't use Elohim, which is a gen generic name for any God. He's specific. He says, Yahweh is my shepherd. It's the God of the Bible. It's the one true God. Right? David is confessing that Yahweh alone is his shepherd, and he alone is the one who can help him overcome the fears, the flies, and the famine of his life. Yahweh alone is the one who can grant him rest and a thankful heart in the midst of all the hardships we may experience. And if you jump to the Gospel of John in the New Testament, there's a chapter where Jesus refers directly to himself as the shepherd. Right? He's using Old Testament language. He's pointing to himself to be the good shepherd. This is, of course, intentional on Jesus' part because one of his purposes was to identify himself to be Yahweh to his audience. It was his self-revelation. So let me ask you, brothers and sisters, are you anxious or afraid of what life may bring? Then hear what Jesus says. Jesus says, don't be afraid. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I will protect you. I got your back. Right? There's nothing to fear.
Are you distracted? Jesus says, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Now listen to my voice. Come unto me, all who are weary, heavy laden, and distracted. I will give you rest. Are you hungering for security or significance? Jesus again says, I am the bread of life and the living water. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's a promise he makes. So I invite you to come to him and find fulfillment for your souls. Let me close with two thoughts. I think this will sort of sharpen the focus a bit for us, okay? So understand, brothers and sisters, we get to a place of contentment, first of all, um, not through a change of our circumstances, but through a person. Okay? It's through a person that we can get to a place of contentment. I want you to consider, once again, the Apostle Paul's circumstance in his life. Right? He was financially broken. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 4, To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless, he confesses. He had an impossible work life, Acts chapter 9. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Try to beat that. He was physically challenged. There was something tormenting him physically. 2 Corinthians 12, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. So I guess we can say it's a physical and psychological torment that he, he had to endure. And I would add to that there was past guilt that he had to overcome each day because he was one of the greatest persecutors of Christians. Imagine being haunted by a very troubled past, one who murdered believers, your own brothers, sisters. He had to deal with that past guilt. And yet... He was able to be content in such circumstances. That is what grace can do. So, brothers and sisters, understand that godly contentment is not rooted in our circumstances, rather in the one who keeps us anchored in the midst of the raging storms around us. It is to a person we can grow and become content. Secondly and lastly, we get to a place of contentment through a process of losing ourselves and of dying to ourselves. It's a process. That's the point. It's not an instantaneous act. Right? Don't think that you arrive at a place of contentment and then you're done. You've arrived as if once you feel content, you don't have to fight for it anymore. Life doesn't work that way. Being content in the Lord is not a one-time event. It's an ongoing process is my last point. So this process of dying to self has to be a regular rhythm, a pattern in your life. You know, most people think that the way to be content is by having all of their natural desires fulfilled. That's not true. What the Bible says is that the way to be content is not by fulfilling yourself, but by losing yourself, by dying to yourself, right? by losing to your old self, by finding your new self in Christ. But I also want, want to say that, that that work becomes complete 
and fulfilled when you reach glory. In the meantime, we have to constantly strive to remember who we are in Christ. You don't just do it once. You, you repeat the process of re, rediscovering or remembering who you are in Christ day by day. So it's got to become a habitual thing. You know? uh, Colossians puts it this way, putting off the old and putting on the new. Putting off the old and putting on the new. Some of you may be thinking, how can anyone experience happiness after giving up so much of who they are? And that's a good question. You know, sometimes I wonder how much happiness you know, my, my own wife actually enjoys. I mean, she says she's happy, but her life is mostly filled with stress and sacrificial work. Uh, and you know, some people have looked at her resume and and concluded, wow, you've wasted your education. Because <laughs> she went to the really good schools and uh, she had high ambitions, but then it's like, oh my goodness, you married a pastor, right? And now you're wasting your education by homeschooling, right? It's like, what a waste has been some people's response. And I admit that, you know, she wakes up in the morning uh, tired. She doesn't wake up with a beaming smile. Um, sometimes, maybe I'm being too harsh on her. Uh, but she, she looks weary most of the day. Uh, but, you know, what keeps her going is this deep sense of fulfillment and satisfaction, right, in going about her routine, knowing that it is part of her life calling. And it's the same with me as well, and I'm sure it's the same with most of you, right? As a father, as a husband, as a pastor of a humble congregation, I know that I am fulfilling my life calling, not something that I've conjured up, but something that has been given to me. I'm, I'm being obedient. But I also keep on going, not because I feel great all the time, but because I know I'm on the right path that leads to life. It's a life that God promised to me in the future. So I reason what's a little hardship now right, if, if my Lord says that glory awaits me. And so that has to be our posture. In the midst of our hardships, that's how we persevere and endure with joy and with thanksgiving. And so, brothers and sisters, are you struggling to find contentment in the Lord these days? Right? Uh, is your heart filled with anger? Well, you know what? Let's be honest. We, we can all relate to that. Right? I, I, I can relate to that fully. Uh, I can say that we all struggle with the same things, but... Again, I want to remind you that contentment is a process. And so there is time always for us to lay our anger down as we remind ourselves of, of the abundant grace that we've received through Christ and the many reasons why we ought to be thankful for the life we've been given. Because all is a gift. Amen? Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that oftentimes we are restless and discontent with our lives. We are blind to your many blessings. At times, we become envious of others and we resent our place in life. We covet our neighbor's possessions, their title, their personalities, their beauty, their lifestyle. Sometimes we secretly believe that you owe us all of these things. As a result, we struggle to rejoice when others prosper and we're quietly relieved when they fail. 
Lord, this sickness lies deep within us, and so we're desperate for your mercy. Please forgive our sins through the blood of Jesus and open our eyes to see that you've blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.